My name is Shelby Kelly. I grew up in a non-religious household, knew and kind of experienced God a little bit when I was in high school through some summer youth camps, but he was just in my head, not in my heart. I met my husband, Justin, when I was 19. We were working at Elgin YMCA as summer camp counselors. And the first thing that he had ever said to me was, what do you believe in? What is your faith like? And I just was so taken back by a guy asking me that question. I had never had anybody cared before, especially a guy um, who was interested in dating me. So a couple weeks after we met, we started dating. And a couple months after that, we started sleeping together because we were in love and that's what people do. You know, like that was normal. That's what our friends were doing. That's what society tells you that you should do. And so um, about six months after that, we started living together. And um, my mom had, had said that you should live with the person that you want to marry before you get married, that it's not enough just to be in love with them, that you have to be compatible that way and make sure that you can handle all of their little quirks and things like that. And so we lived together for about a year until I went to U of I in Champaign in 2012 and really was just able to experience God at the church down in Champaign and, um, and started to feel convicted and conflicted about us sleeping together and living together. So when I went home, I just told him that, like how I felt about it. And he was like, well, like I don't really understand, you know, why you felt one way about it and why you feel this way about it now. But we got engaged January 11th of 2013. And then um, still was just like, Engage just wasn't really good enough. Like it couldn't cover our sins and it didn't change how I was feeling. So we found Christ Community Church, started attending there. Very quickly after that, we got connected into a 20s community group. And after about four weeks or so of attending our 20s community group, um, myself and Justin and our community group leaders were sitting uh, in their living room, just talking late one night. And I just asked them like, hey, so what do you guys think about us living together? And they said, um, well, like we don't believe in that and that's not what God calls us to do and that's not what the Bible says to do. They asked us, what kind of legacy do you want to leave for your children? Do you want to tell them that you were living in sin and that you didn't do anything about it and you could have? Or do you want to say, I was living in sin and I knew that I was wrong and I asked God for forgiveness and I made a change? And so that night, Justin and I went home and we were talking about it. And I said, I don't want it, like, I don't want to live in sin anymore. So Justin slept on the couch for three weeks. And we had a really small, intimate wedding at uh, Mount St. Mary's Park in St. Charles. And had to call family and tell them that they, that they couldn't come and make that kind of tough decision um, to have a smaller wedding. But our wedding was really about God. It wasn't about... Um, it wasn't about us, it wasn't about a big party, it was just about honoring him and changing our lives for him. And he's really just blessed us with that and shown us more riches than we could have ever had on our own. Christ Community Church, how are you doing today? 
Good. Well, it is good to be together as a church family uh, here in St. Charles, in Streamwood Bartlett, in Blackberry Creek, and in DeKalb. Uh, it's just always good to be together. It's also good to have those of you who are here who are guests, who are visiting. Uh, we hope that you are finding Christ Community to be a warm, welcoming place, a place where it's easy to explore the claims of Jesus, and hopefully a place that you will soon call your own church home. And so we're glad that you're here. I do want to reiterate what was said in the announcements before. This is going to be a PG-13 message. We're going to be talking about issues of sexuality. Uh, And not only that, but we're going to be talking about some particularly sensitive things uh, because the topic of incest and abuse comes up in this chapter. So it's not the only thing we talk about, but we will touch on it in the sermon. And I know uh, if that's part of your history, you prefer not to be blindsided by that. So I figured I'd give you a chance to prepare yourself knowing that's coming. Well, given the nature of these topics, we need prayer just as much as we always do. So let's pray together. God, we are so thankful that you speak into every area of our life, that there isn't anything about us that you uh, don't care about, that you care about these intimate things, these things that uh, are often uh, hidden from the world, and you've got something life-giving and good to say to us in the area of our sexuality. So God, we we give you permission. We know you don't need permission to work in our lives, but we're giving you permission to do whatever you want to do do today, that you would uh, transform us, you would work by your power, by your spirit, so that we would be healed from our hurts and we would be freed from our sin and we'd become more and more the people you want us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last summer, I am sitting in a Starbucks, sipping an Earl Grey tea, which is my usual drink, and across the table from me is Pastor Jim. And we've got paper spread out all over the table that's in front of us. And we've got, they are the ideas that we've got for the teaching series for the upcoming year. And what we're doing is we're working through the calendar and we're, you know, going month by month. What should we talk about? What should we talk about? So October, November, oh, great ideas, great ideas. And we finally get to February and March. And Jim says, you know, that's the season of Lent in the church calendar. And so usually we plan a series that will help prepare people for Good Friday and Easter. Uh, So what should we do there? And he tossed out, well, maybe do something about the love of God or something else. And we've got all these ideas that come out. And then one of us, and I'm not going to use names to protect the guilty, but one of us said, hey, Jim, You know, the Bible-savvy reading plan we put together, uh, we're going through Leviticus at that time. Wouldn't it be hilarious if we did a series on Leviticus? It's one of those moments where, like, the words are coming out of your mouth, and you're like, no, bring it back, bring it back. Like, I see the look in his eyes. I swear, I meant it as a joke. We're in week three of our series on Leviticus. And today we are in Leviticus 18. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, As you have already picked up, this is a passage that contains a bunch of weird Old Testament sex laws, and we're going there. Uh, And there is a reason why I'm talking today and Jim is not. Uh, It's... (laughs) It's because Jim loves me, and he also loves having an empty email inbox. (laughs) It's very interesting that he had a family trip to the West Coast scheduled on this particular weekend. Um, This is a challenging passage, uh, but we don't skip challenging passages. And that's because in the New Testament, uh, in 2 Timothy, we are told all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so what that means is that uh, we can't ignore any passage of Scripture, no matter how hard it might be. And one of our jobs as pastors is to make sure that we keep talking about the things God wants us to talk about, not just the things that are easy to talk about. And here's what makes this particular passage difficult. Uh, This is basically the worst place in the Bible to start talking about what God thinks about sex. 
because uh, the passage is basically about what God doesn't want you to do. It's the restrictions. And so if you come here first and you say, well, is this what God thinks about sex? You're going to think his dominant message is restriction, control, containment. Uh, think of it this way. If you uh, knew nothing about the sport of basketball, nothing at all, and the very first introduction you had to it was walking into a, a locker room at halftime when a team was down by 20 points. And the coach is just laying into the players. And he's saying, you should have done this. You shouldn't have done that. And he's telling them exactly what they need to do to fix things in the second half. And if you walk in and you say, this is what this is all about. You think, this is pretty stressful. I don't want anything to do with this. Why, why do people do this? But here's the thing. It, you, what you aren't picking up is the love of the game that all the players have. The camaraderie that they have on the team. The trust that they've built up between them and the coach. They say, you know what? This guy is there for me. I know that. I've seen this in all these other ways. And when he tells me this during a tough moment, I can trust him and I know he means it for my good. Leviticus 18 is the stern halftime lecture that the coach is giving. It is not the entire game. And if you start where the Bible actually starts talking about the Bible, you get a very different picture. The very first page of the Bible, you know what the first command God gave to human beings was? Be fruitful and multiply. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the way to fulfill that command is to have sex and lots of it, okay? The second chapter of the Bible, you know where it ends? It ends with the first man and the first woman totally naked, looking at each other, completely unashamed, about to have sex. And God says, this is good. This is what I wanted. There is an entire book of the Bible filled with erotic poetry. Did you know that? Song of Songs. We're actually doing a sermon series on that in a few months. And guess who gets to preach it? Jim. Okay. Oh, my goodness. In the New Testament, God actually tells married couples, you need to have lots of sex in your marriage. That's a command. Uh, in a patriarchal first century culture, you know what the Apostle Paul says? He says to husbands, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your wife. And if you are not meeting your wife's sexual needs, you are sinning. Can I get an amen from the ladies, okay? <laughs> There's another command that I, I like in the Bible, and it's to husbands. Again, it says, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. I, I always try to get couples to read this one at their wedding, and for some reason they don't take me up on it. Something about in-laws or something like that. All throughout the Bible, if you, the dominant message about sex is that God made it, he loves it, he blesses it, he is pro-sex. God's not against sex. What he's against is the misuse of sex. And that's what Leviticus 18 is about. In, in context, he's trying to guide us in how not to misuse something that is very, very good and very powerful. So with that in mind, let's read the opening paragraph of this chapter. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and my laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. God is so good that he speaks to us, so let's thank him for this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, after this opening paragraph, we get a list of sexual activities that are prohibited. And here's a summary of what is outlawed in this chapter. Uh, sex with a family member. Sex during menstruation. Sex with someone who is not your spouse sex with someone of the same sex, and sex with an animal. Now, I am sure just that list by itself is raising all sorts of questions. But before we get too far into that, we do have to ask one big question first. Do these laws apply to us? 
Because that's a question you've always got to ask when you're reading Old Testament laws. Uh, Because these laws were given as part of the covenant between the people of Israel and God. And so what that means is that when you're reading them, they are less like general laws and principles for the whole world, and they are more like the terms of a contract or a treaty. Uh, Israel was entering into this agreement with God, and this is their uh, side of the deal. And the difference between a law and the terms of a contract is that the terms of a contract only apply to people who are inside the contract. So for example, a lot of professional athletes, as part of their contracts, uh, they have a clause that says uh, you can't play exhibition games. Okay? You can only play league games in your sport because if you went and played other games, then uh, you might injure yourself, you'd be making money for somebody else, and so we don't want you to do that, so the team rules it out. Now, just because that's in an athlete's contract, does that mean you can't go play a game of three-on-three basketball? No, because it applies to them and not to you. But uh, they also have in their contract clauses that say you cannot use drugs. Now, does that clause apply to you or just to them? Well, it applies to you, too, because it's a general law. It's illegal in this country to use drugs, so it also applies to you. So when we're reading the Old Testament, we've got to ask the question, okay, are these part of the contract that God had with the nation of Israel for that time and place, or are these general principles, moral laws that apply to all people everywhere? Uh, To make things more complicated, when Jesus came, he actually made a new covenant, a new contract between God and people, uh, and he actually kind of took the old covenant and reworked it and, and did new things with it. This is the way Jesus describes what he did. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, that first covenant, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So all of the Old Testament covenant, it is fulfilled in Jesus, but each part is fulfilled in different sorts of ways. And so modern scholars have actually looked at the laws in the Old Old Covenant, and they've divided them into three broad categories. They are civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. And each of these categories, they get fulfilled and reworked in different ways in the New Covenant. So civil laws, these are the laws that applied to Israel as a political entity who had a particular territory of land that they were governing. So these are laws that concern things like punishment for crime, uh, economic regulations, paying taxes and tithes, these sorts of things. And because Jesus opened up uh, the the covenant to not just the nation of Israel, but to all nations, uh, most of these laws don't apply very directly. Uh, Sometimes the principles get transferred over and get applied to the community of of believers, but uh, a lot of times the original law in its original form doesn't apply. Uh, The second category, ceremonial laws, these are laws about the way people related to God using the tabernacle or the temple system. Uh, These are things that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, things like sacrifices, uh, laws about clean and unclean things, festivals, priests, uh, this sort of stuff. And and what we've been learning is that Jesus fulfilled the tabernacle system. He did all the things the sacrifices were supposed to do, all the things the priests were supposed to do. Uh, He... uh, Uh, cleanses us and takes away uh, those clean and unclean laws. And so all of these things are fulfilled and they no longer apply directly to you and me. But the third category, the moral laws, these are laws that uh, apply general principles to all people and all times and places. Now here is the tricky part about this. When you're reading through the Old Testament, these laws are not labeled. Uh, These are categories that modern scholars came up with and the words never appear in the Bible. And when you do start to label them and identify them, you realize that these laws are all mixed together in how they're listed. You you see them side by side with one another. And so the big question is, how do you actually sort out which is which? Which ones apply to us and which don't? Well, there's there's a few ways you can do that, but the only surefire way to do that is by asking the question, what does the New Testament say about this law? So for Leviticus 18, we've got to ask the question, what does the New Testament say about sexual sin? Does it repeal and replace these laws? Does it modify them? Does it reiterate them? What does it do? 
Uh, some of them are obvious. No one's really arguing about them. Uh, unless you are Belle from Beauty and the Beast, you probably aren't stressing out about the bestiality law. I know it's a tale as old as time, but most people aren't into that. <laughs> Same is true with the incest laws. Uh, no one really argues that they should be repealed. Uh, but in case you're wondering, the New Testament does reiterate them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, the laws against adultery are also reiterated in multiple places. The most famous place is when Jesus uh, reiterates it and then kind of ups the ante. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he isn't just saying adultery is wrong. He's saying fantasizing about sex with someone that you're not married to is wrong. Uh, adultery may be more pra- have more practical consequences, but spiritually speaking, lust is just as damaging. So those are really clear cut. The one that most people wonder about, though, is verse 22. It's the law against sleeping with someone of the same sex. Wonder is that, is that a universal principle, or is that part of the ceremonial law and kind of went away with the Old Testament? Uh, which is it? Well, the prohibition against same-sex sexual activity is reiterated at least three times in the New Testament. Uh, the clearest time that this passage in Leviticus is echoed is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and this is what Paul says. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that covers all sexual sin, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what Paul is doing in this verse is he's covering a lot of different sinful activities. And he says, people who do these things and do not repent, do not ask for forgiveness, who don't say help to God about these things, they're excluded from the kingdom of God. And that's a really serious thing. And it's worth noting that this list includes a lot of different things. It includes all kinds of sexual sin. It includes greed and drunkenness and slandering people. Uh, This is not a passage that singles out homosexuality. Uh, This is a passage that catches all of us. But it does include in the list men who have sex with other men. And actually, if you read that in the Greek, the the Greek term, one of the Greek terms that's used in that phrase comes straight out of Leviticus. It's It's a quote from the Greek translation of Leviticus. And so what Paul is saying is that law back in Leviticus, that's what I'm talking about. It still applies. Now, we're going to talk more about this in a little bit, because I know that raises even more questions, and this is a complex topic. But the first thing I want you to see is that God does reiterate that the law is still standing for today. Uh, The one law in this chapter that people are unclear about is the law about having sex with a menstruating woman. Now, I know that this is an awkward thing to talk about, uh, but we need to talk about it because this is the one where people say, hey, look, clearly this, this can't be sinful, right? So maybe the rest of these laws about sex are a little bit negotiable as well. Well, biblical scholars are divided about this one. There's kind of two approaches to the matter. Uh, On the one hand, some people say, you know, uh, this is a law that has its basis in the rules about clean and unclean things. So uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you come in contact with blood or a dead body or a few other things, you are ceremonially unclean, which means you are not allowed to go into the uh, worship center, into the tabernacle, uh, to offer your sacrifice to God. And so uh, what this law is really about is saying, don't do something that you, you know will deliberately make you unclean. Don't, uh, don't do that. Uh, and since the rules about clean and unclean have been abolished, then this law no longer has a basis for it and it doesn't apply anymore. So that's the majority opinion about this one. 
But there are other scholars who say, you know, it's a little bit trickier than that. Uh, because the, the reason, uh, the, the rest of the laws in this section, in this chapter, say, uh, you know, they're still in force. And so it's hard in context to say just this one law doesn't apply anymore. Here's the thing. I don't know the right answer about this. Uh, my guess, though, is it's probably just good advice either way. Uh, guys, your wife is prob probably not feeling the sexiest when this law applies, so just keep the rule. And I'm going to add that to things I never thought I'd uh, talk about in a sermon. <laughs> All right, so let me sum this up. Do these laws still apply? For the most part, yes. Uh, when you look at what the New Testament does about laws about sexuality, it's very interesting. Uh, the New Testament loosens up all sorts of things that the Old Testament is very strict about. Uh, but on issues of sexuality, it actually raises the standard. It's, it tightens the rules. Uh, when you boil it all down, these are the New Testament standards on sexuality. God's good gift of sexual activity is reserved for a marriage between one man and one woman. We may not engage in or, or fantasize about sexual behavior outside of those boundaries. Those are the standards. That's what rules still apply to us today. So, if Leviticus 18 is still in force, what else can we learn from this chapter about biblical sexuality? I think we can learn three more things. First is this. Biblical sexuality is a countercultural sexuality. Uh, look at verse 3. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. What God is telling the Israelites is he's saying, here's what you can't do. You cannot look at all the people around you, whatever culture we're talking about, the one you're coming from, the one you're going to. You cannot look at those cultures and say, well, what are they doing? We'll just do that as well. Because here's the thing. Every single culture gets sex wrong. They get it wrong in different ways, but every culture gets sex wrong in some ways. Uh, just like every culture gets money wrong in some ways and power wrong in some ways. Our cultures are not reliable guides to what God wants for us, especially in the area of sexuality. And so God knows that if we follow his standards, uh, they're going to cut against the grain of whatever culture we find ourselves in. Uh, this week, my family did what we always do around this time of year. Uh, we had a big St. Patrick's Day celebration. Uh, the whole thing, uh, corned beef and cabbage and potatoes and soda bread and the works. In our family, very often St. Patrick's Day is bigger than Thanksgiving, okay? Uh, today, we uh, this Last week, we had a small gathering of people. We had 14 adults and 12 children, which is a, a small gathering in my family. Um, but here's the thing I love about these, these big family parties uh, is how much laughter there is. You know, you know what it's like to just be with your family and you're laughing and so on. And the laughter often comes from old family stories. You know, the, the one about how we stole all those Rice Krispie treats and the time we convinced Hillary that she was adopted and all of these different stories. And sometimes you don't even have to tell the story. You just sort of mention what happened and the whole family cracks up because we all know it. But have you ever noticed that a lot of times your family stories aren't quite as funny when there's a guest around? You know, like you work so hard. You're like, you're trying to explain why this inside joke is just the best. And they're just, they give you like the, you know, courtesy chuckles like, <laughs> you know, and you're left with just like, you just had to be there, you know? Same thing is true when it comes to God's standards about sexuality. The culture around us uh, might give us a courtesy chuckle, but that's going to be the best. They're, they're not going to get it. It's just not going to ring true. Uh, we can make the case that biblical sexuality is a life-giving thing, and I'm going to do that in just a minute. But ultimately, biblical sexuality only makes sense in the context of the biblical story. If you don't start with the first marriage in the Garden of Eden and end with the final marriage of Christ and the church in the new creation, it's going to be really hard to see why biblical sexuality is such a beautiful thing. And what this means is we shouldn't be surprised when other people just don't get it. 
and it just doesn't make sense to them. It also means that we're going to have to stick together if we're really going to follow this path. Uh, The only way to keep an inside joke funny is to keep hanging out with your family. We need other people who can set an example in this to to show us that it can actually be done this way. We need people who are going to be there to encourage us when it's hard and challenge us when we fail. We need to be around people who view things upside right so that we remember that the world has things upside down. We've got to do this together. Otherwise, we're just going to drift into what seems obvious with everybody else around us. Biblical sexuality is countercultural sexuality. Not only that, but biblical sexuality is life-giving sexuality. Look at verse 5 here. God says, Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. You will live by them. God's rules are meant to give us life. Uh, The reason God puts boundaries on sex is because sex is like nuclear power. If used right, it can light up a city. If used wrong, it can level the city. You can think of these laws as kind of warning labels God puts on his good and powerful gift. You you ever seen like a ridiculous warning label on a product? Uh, Maybe something like this. These are actual real warning labels. Uh, On a rotary tool, this product is not intended for use as a dental drill. (laughs) On an iron, do not iron clothes on body. (laughs) On a hairdryer, do not use while sleeping. That's impressive if you can pull that off. How do these labels get on these products? Somebody does one of these things and then sues the company, and the company's like, I guess we've got to warn these idiots about this, you know? In some ways, that's what God is doing with these laws. He has seen seen actual people do these things and foolishly misuse his good gift in ways that harm them and harm other people. And he's saying, don't do this. This is not going to go well. You're not going to live if you do this. How do these warnings uh, help us with that? Let's start with the really intense one here, the laws about incest. Now, most of us, when we read these laws about incest, we say, well, isn't that kind of obvious? You know, every culture has a taboo about sleeping with a blood relative. And from the perspective of modern genetics, we know that uh, these kind of rules prevent genetic defects and diseases and and so on. So it just seems kind of obvious. Why make such a big deal out of it here? Well, it's worth noting that the laws in Leviticus 18 don't just cover blood relatives. They also talk about step relatives and in-laws. And there's a reason for that. It's because these laws are not about protecting the gene pool. They're laws about protecting vulnerable women in a patriarchal household. You gotta remember that in those days, the entire extended family lived on the same piece of land. You know, the kids and grandkids and their spouses and and everybody lived on the same piece of land and worked it together as a family and often in the same building. And, And the head patriarch of the family had a huge amount of power within the family that often went unchecked by anybody outside of them. And as is often is the case, that power led to the abuse of the vulnerable within the family, which was usually women. And so these laws are about checking abusive male power within a family. And unfortunately, when you see it that way, it's as relevant as ever. There's varying statistics about this, but according to the Department of Justice, one in five women and one in six men have been victims of sexual assault. And the majority of those instances happen with family members in homes. And so that's the reason I'm glad these laws are in the Bible, because it says to those who are survivors of those things what God actually thinks about this. It was wrong, and it breaks God's heart. I I was floored when I I read this week a story about a woman who had been abused by her father. 
And the turning point in her process of healing was actually discovering Leviticus 18. It's amazing. Let, let me read to you what she said. I remember very clearly the moment, the words leaping out at me, incest taboos, one after another. I, I slammed the book shut. I was shocked. I had no idea that was in the Bible. I, I never imagined it might be mentioned there. I was reeling. My father by now was six years dead. I never knew that what he did was condemned. I never knew he was breaking God's law. But there it was, clear as anything. I will never be able to explain what that moment was like, that discovery of Leviticus 18. I wanted to call up everyone I knew and say it was wrong. What he did was wrong. It says so right here in the Bible. Therapists had told me, my own instincts had told me, everything had told me, yet nothing told me the way Leviticus told me. Wrong, condemned, hateful in the eyes of God. For the first time, I felt utterly and absolutely vindicated. For the first time, I felt clean. I felt absolved. I felt released. You've heard me say this before, but I know that there are some of you who are in unsafe situations. Someone is hurting you, and, and it might be a family member. And I want you to know this. God does not want you to stay in that situation. Please, please get help. If you don't know how to get help, the, the simplest thing you can do is come and talk to a pastor here at the church. Uh, we're available all the time throughout the weekend. You can just pull us aside and say, hey, I, I need to talk to you about something. Throughout the week, you can stop in. There's always someone available to talk. At any time of the day, you can call our number and you can leave a message and someone will very, very quickly get back to you. If you need help, reach out to us. We can get you that help. There, there are some of you here who you say, well, that, that was something in my past. I'm not in an unsafe situation right now, but you're still working through the, the pain and the scars from that. Here's the thing. We don't want you to have to do that alone. You shouldn't have to do that alone. Uh, healing comes in community. So uh, we can put you in touch with a good counselor who can walk with you through that. We can put you in touch with a support group that can help with that. Uh, we can be there for you. We don't want you to walk through the healing process alone. Please reach out to us and let us know. Uh, that's the first warning label here, the warning against incest. And I think we'd all say that's a good thing. The second warning label, though, is the one that uh, a lot of people push back on. It's the one against adultery. Now, there's not a lot of people who would argue, you know, oh, it's, it's just all right to cheat on your spouse. But that doesn't change the fact that 50% of American adults admit to cheating in some romantic relationship, maybe a dating or a married relationship. 15 to 20% of people admit to cheating on their spouse. And those are just people who slept with someone else. Uh, according to Jesus, this boundary is not just about uh, sleeping with, with someone you're not married to. It includes fantasizing about having sex with someone you're not married to which brings the percentage up quite a bit. If you look at the stats on uh, pornography use, it's really sobering. Uh, there was a research uh, study by Barna in 2016, and this is what they found out. For men, under the age of 25, over 80% have sought out pornography at least one point in their life, and 67% use porn at least once a month. Uh, for men over 25, it's better but not good. 65% have sought out porn, and just under half use it monthly. And sometimes we think of this as a strictly a male issue, but here are the numbers of women. Under 25, over half have sought out porn, and about a third use it monthly. And over 25, 27% have sought it out, and one in eight use it monthly. So a conservative estimate, just about the people who are present here this weekend, it means hundreds of women 
and over a thousand men are actively struggling with porn right now. So we've got a problem here. Now the studies have demonstrated that the more porn we view, the harder it is to be aroused by an actual physical person in front of us. The more insecure we are about our bodies and about our sexual performance the more likely you are to get divorced. Uh, someone who is actively using pornography is twice as likely to get a divorce than someone who isn't. Uh, I recently ran across this quote from an actor and comedian, Russell Brand, who if you know who he is, you know he's far from being a follower of Christ. But he was reflecting on the effect of pornography in his life, and this is what he said. Our attitudes towards sex have become warped and perverted and have deviated from its true function as an expression of love and a means for procreation. Because of our acculturation, the way we've designed it and expressed it has become really, really confused. I heard a quote from a priest that said, pornography is not a problem because it shows too much, it's a problem because it shows too little. And I think what he's saying is that pornography reduces the spectacle of sex to a kind of abstracted physical act. Pornography is not something that I like. It's affecting my ability to relate to women, to relate to myself, my own sexuality, my own spirituality. Just think of it this way. Imagine the world with just two changes. No one ever slept with someone that they weren't married to. Nobody ever slept with a person they weren't married to. And there was no pornography. If you just made those two changes, would our world be a better place or a worse place? I mean, think about how it would change the relationship between men and women in general. Uh, think about how it would reduce body image problems, how it would reduce drama within friend groups, uh, how it would reduce insecurity inside romantic relationships, how it would drop the number of, of single-parent homes, how it would bring security to children and families and spouses and marriages. Without those two things, we would live in a dramatically better world. It would be a more life-giving world. And here's the thing. That's the world God is trying to create by giving us these rules. He says the person who obeys them will live by them. The community who obeys them will live by them. Sexual sin kills, and God wants us to live. Let me address the elephant in the room here. Go back to verse 22. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Now, this is obviously the most controversial part of this chapter. In a world where same-sex marriage is legal and all of us have gay friends, this just seems really, really harsh, really unfair. Uh, there's a, a term in the LGBT community for verses like this in the Bible. They're called clobber passages because that's what people use them for, to, to beat up on gay people, to shame them and exclude them and make excuses for mistreating them. I, I, was, uh, I used to work at a college, and one of my jobs was to uh, run the support group for LGBT students, uh, same-sex attracted students. It was a, a Christian college, and so these were kids that felt really out of place there. Uh, and we would get together every Tuesday night, 10 or 20 kids were, were regular, depending on the year, and uh, we, we would talk about what they were going through. And all these kids, they, they had grown up in churches, and every single one of them had heard this verse quoted at them. Someone saying, you're detestable because of this. You're an abomination because of this. And some of you are wondering, is that the kind of church you guys are? Or are you going to treat people that way? First, let me clear up something about this term detestable, abomination. Okay? Uh, that is a, a very, very tricky word. Uh, it's a serious word because it expresses something God really doesn't want to happen. But it's a word that gets used in a, a number of other places. God applies it to all sexual sin. He applies it to greed. 
He applies it to unjust business practices. He, he applies it to keeping the clean and the unclean laws. He, he applies it to neglecting the needs of the poor. So, so that's a serious word, and if we start using it, it's going to start sticking to all of us if we take it seriously. So we've got to be careful about that. But here's the thing. I, I, I never like to talk about this as sort of like a, an issue out there. You know, we're talking about homosexuality as something out there. And I certainly don't like talking about this as if it was a problem to be solved. I, I would much rather talk to someone, talk to a person who ought to be loved. And so that's what I want to do right now. I, I want to talk to those of you who experience some form of same-sex attraction. And, and statistically speaking, that's a, a few hundred of you within our community. And so I want to talk directly to you. I can't say everything that I'd like to say to you, uh, but I do want you to hear uh, four things, four things loud and clear that are really important. Uh, first is this. We know that this is really hard for you. We know this is really hard for you. Every gay person I've ever met said, I didn't choose this. Why in the world would I choose this? This has only made my life harder. Uh, the discovery of uh, same-sex attractions is bewildering. It's confusing. It's distressing for people. And when you realize this is going on, you start to hear all of the voices around you. Everybody is yelling about you or yelling at you. The people on the right say you're a problem. The people on the left say you're a cause. And everybody wants to use you to make some point. And that is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Uh, every person I've talked to that's opened up to me about this, they say, you, you know what question is always in the back of my mind? All the time, I'm constantly thinking about it. It's, will I be rejected? Like when people find out about me and what I'm going through, will they want me? Will they, they send me away? Will I be excluded from their community because of what I'm going through? That is incredibly, incredibly hard. And I want you to know, we know that's what you're going through. Here's the second thing I want you to hear. We know that obedience in this area is incredibly costly, incredibly costly. Uh, you've already heard me say that uh, we think the prohibition against same-sex sexual activity uh, is still in play. And one thing I should clarify about that uh, is that uh, the Bible does not condemn you for being attracted to the same sex. Uh, what it prohibits is activity, uh, engaging in sex with someone of the same sex, uh, fantasizing about that. And so it's not the attractions that the Bible rejects, it's the actions that might follow from them. But even with that distinction, this still can feel like a punch in the gut. Because unless there's some miraculous change in your orientation, which doesn't happen very often, your options are really difficult ones. For most people, faithfulness in this area means lifelong celibate singleness. And that's not a bad life, that's a good life, but it does mean being forced to say no to some things that you really want and straight people can say yes to. Things like romance and sex and children. And that's really costly, and, and we're not going to pretend anything else. Here's the thing, though. When you, you think about that cost, uh, what I don't want you to do is picture me or someone like me telling you this is what you have to do. Some, some straight married guy saying, no, you can't have this. What I want you to do is picture Jesus, the one who actually is calling you to this. And I want you to picture Jesus in a particular situation. Picture him in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before Jesus is going to go to the cross. And he knows this is the very best thing anybody's ever going to do. It's going to save the world. And he's got to go do it. But he's praying to the Father. He's saying, God, if there is another way, can we take that way? Can we do a plan B on this? It, can you take this cup from me? Because I don't want to do this. This is going to be so, so hard for me. And so when you think, who, who is calling me to this costly, difficult choice? I want you to picture Jesus, the one who actually knows how hard and how costly it is to obey. 
He is the one who says, I know this is what is good, and I know how hard it's going to be to do it anyway. Please follow me. Here's the third thing I want you to hear. You are more than your sexuality. You are more than your sexuality. It is so easy for your sexuality to be the sun around which your entire life orbits. But you are more than just your sexual orientation. Uh, you have so much more to offer. You, you have gifts and talents. You have passions and interests. You have goals in life. You have cultural experiences. You have friendships and family relationships. You have preferences and perspectives. You, you have a sense of humor. You have personal tastes. And you bring all of this into whatever community you're a part of, and you make us richer for that. You make this church richer for being here and all that you are. But I've known a lot of people who let their sexuality uh, be the thing that seeps into all those other areas of life and start defining all those other areas of life. And you know what that does? It increases the sense of isolation and the, the, the stress that you feel uh, about your sexuality. Because then uh, how you feel about every aspect of your life rises and falls based on how other people react to your sexuality and how you feel about your sexuality. And, and so it's, gonna, it's just gonna tank you uh, as you go through that. Here's the thing. I, I don't want to reduce anybody to just their sexuality. And I hope you won't reduce yourself to that. But here's the fourth thing, and this is the most important thing. This is the thing I really, really want you to hear. God wants you, and so do we. It's the most important thing. God loves you. He delights in you. He is for you and not against you. You are not a problem to God. You are a treasure to God. God is standing with his arms open wide saying, come to me, I love you. Let me embrace you from wherever you're coming from. Whatever you've done, whatever you've experienced, whoever you are, my arms are open. I want to embrace you as my son, as my daughter, as my beloved child. That's worth clapping about. But here's the other thing I want you to hear. Not only does God love you, but we love you too. We want you here. You are not a problem to us. You are a treasure to us. And we are glad that you are here. We are glad that you are here. I, I know that being in a community like this is, is hard and it is messy. But here's the thing. Family, it's always hard. It's always messy. But you're my sister. You're my brother. And I want you here. It would break my heart if you left. We love you. We love you. Without equivocation, we love you. Uh, like I said, uh, there is more to be said on, on this topic, uh, more than I can get into right now, but I wanted to make sure you heard those things loud and clear. Let's take one more look at this passage. Uh, because biblical sexuality is not just countercultural, it's not just life-giving, but it's also a humble sexuality, a humble sexuality. Look at verse 24. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. Because this is how the nations I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, and so I punished it for its sins. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations who were before you. Let me explain what's going on in these verses. God is about to bring the people of Israel into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Uh, basically, what he's doing is kind of a reset on the whole Adam and Eve thing, the whole Garden of Eden project. He's putting his people in a fruitful land 
They're going to have access to his presence, and they're going to be blessed uh, with, with tremendous blessings from God. But just like Adam and Eve, if they refuse to obey, they're going to be kicked out of paradise again. And so God describes this in pretty graphic terms. He uses a, a vivid metaphor here. He says, the land will vomit you out, uh, just like it did the people who were here before you. Now, at this point, there is a temptation for Israel. Uh, because th what they can do when they hear this is they can look at all those other nations and say, you know what? Look at how rotten and terrible those people were. God kicked them out and gave their land to us, which means we must be better people than them. And isn't that what religious people always do? Like, like you give us some rules and we look at all the people who aren't keeping the rules and we say, ha, look at all those sinners. I'm so glad I'm not like them. I'm one of the good guys. And because of that, how many people uh, come into church and they feel judged? They feel ashamed. Maybe, maybe nobody knows uh, about their sexual history or their, their past or what they're going through. But even so, they feel like these people are going to shame me. They're going to judge me because they're up on this high horse. But here's the thing you got to remember. When you read this passage, remember that Israel failed. They failed. They, they weren't actually any different from the people who were there before them. And they were kicked out of the land. Now, this doesn't mean that these commands are impossible to keep, but it does mean that, that we can never get uh, high and mighty about sexual sin. This is the way it says it in the New Testament. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Don't be presumptuous. Instead, be humble. Be humble. What does it mean to be humble? Uh, humility does not mean hating yourself. Humility means being honest about yourself means being honest about your weakness, about your sin, about your failures. And that really is the one practical piece of advice I want to give you today. I don't know exactly what your sexual struggles are like, but no matter what you're going through, this one piece of advice will help. And this is it. Commit to having no sexual secrets. Commit to having no sexual secrets. Say that with me. Commit to having no sexual secrets. Uh, here's what I don't mean by that. It does not mean telling everything to everybody, okay? Some of you are like, whew, okay. <laughs> but what it does mean is telling everything to somebody. It, it means that there should be nothing about your sexual struggles that only you know about. Uh, for most of us, that means finding just a, a single person or maybe a small group of people to say, this is what I'm really going through, so that they know. And not just that they know, but they're people who are actually going to walk with you in that. Uh, that they're going to be there for you. They're going to encourage you and they're going to challenge you. They're, they're going to point you in the path of life-giving sexuality. Because uh, I, I would put money on this. I, I, that if you do not have someone like that in your life, you are probably not going to make it in, in terms of sexual faithfulness. Uh, obedience is a team sport. We, we've got to be humble enough to ask for help. We've got to commit to having no sexual secrets. I can tell you from personal experience, the decision to become honest about my sexual sin has been the most life-giving, liberating decisions I've ever made. It's probably in the top 10 list of decisions a person can make in their life is to come clean uh, about their sexual history and, and what they're struggling with. Because I'll tell you, this is what will happen. You will find that God is so incredibly gracious and kind. He, he's not gonna shame you. He's not gonna reject you. He's not gonna send you away. He's gonna embrace you. He's going to forgive you. He's going to set you free. He's going to give you power to become a totally new kind of person. That no matter what you've done or where you're coming from, God loves you and he wants to set you free. So come clean. Uh, we're going to sing one final song now. It's a song where we ask God to fill us up with his presence and his power so that we can be freed from sin. Uh, as we do that, we're going to collect our tithes and our offerings. Uh, but before we do that, let me pray for us. Father, 
we're thankful that there isn't a, a topic in the world that's off limits for us here in church. Uh, there's nothing that you, you, you say, don't talk about that, I don't care about that, including our sexuality, including the pain that we feel, including uh, the things that we've done that make us feel ashamed. And God, we thank you that the things that you say are life-giving and good. So God, I, I wanna pray for uh, every single person here. I wanna pray for those uh, who have experienced uh, abuse at the hands of another person. God, I pray that you would bring healing and wholeness in their life. God, I pray that you would protect those who are vulnerable right now. God, I pray that you would get help for those who need help. God, I, I pray that you would uh, walk with people uh, through the process uh, of coming to a place of, of knowing uh, your love and your grace in their life. God, I pray for those uh, who are engaged in some kind of sexual sin and they know they need to be free. They know they, know they need to turn away from that. God, I pray that you would give them the courage and the faith uh, to take that step. God, that they would, they would commit to not having sexual secrets. And God, I pray that you would make us a community uh, that is full of life and, and full of joy and freedom because we're walking in your way. And we pray that you would do that in the power of your spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.